0: Well, I have some good news. Next week, our senior pastor, Dr. Young, will be back in the pulpit. Next week is Palm Sunday. Doesn't it feel like that has snuck up on us rather quickly? That means that we are two weeks away right now from Easter Sunday. So next week, it's going to be an amazing time. Do not miss it. Before we go to God's Word, I invite you, if you are able, to take a knee with me. Go before the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to come into your house and to worship you. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray that you will speak to us right now through your word. Our prayer is that you will speak. Help me get out of the way. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I was 15 years old the first time that I took a CPR class. I've probably taken a CPR class maybe 10 times since that time. And one of the fascinating things, if you've taken a CPR class, is right when they're teaching, before they get to the actual CPR part, they talk about this important first step. That as you are about to start trying to resuscitate this person, keep this person alive, before even doing that, you're supposed to look around the room, you're supposed to find somebody... You're supposed to point to them in the chest, make eye contact with that person, and say the phrase, You call 911. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is they specify that you shouldn't say, Someone call 911. Don't just make it a broad statement to anybody in the room. Instead, look one person in the eyes, point to that person, and say, You call 911. What's fascinating about that is that they've found that if you don't point to the individual and give that person that delegation of responsibility, if someone doesn't feel like they themselves are responsible for it, you have what's called the bystander effect. That if a group of people are all in the same area, the more people are in that area, the less likely somebody is to act. So in the example of CPR, If you say someone call 911, there's a risk that no one ends up calling 911 because they all assume that somebody else is going to do it. Whereas if you point to someone, you make sure that they know that it is their job to do it, it's more likely to actually happen. Think about if you're in a stadium. If you're in a stadium of people and somebody goes down and someone needs to perform CPR, the odds of you responding in that moment are pretty unlikely, why? Because your natural assumption is that there's someone else here in the stadium that's more qualified to do that and therefore I don't have to do anything. The smaller the group, the more likely you are to jump into action. Sometimes we do it because we assume that it's somebody else's responsibility. Sometimes we don't jump in simply because we think it's not our job. Sometimes, frankly, we don't jump in because we don't want to. Think about every time that you're walking around and you see trash on the ground. Or maybe you're at the grocery store and you take that cart and you've unloaded your car and you look around and what is littered across the grocery store? Parking lot. Lots of grocery carts. And it's really easy to just step it aside, kind of roll it to the side. It's not my responsibility. I don't have to do it. The bystander effect comes into effect when there are emergencies around us, there are problems around us, there are issues around us, but nobody is jumping in and taking responsibility for those things. Take a moment and reflect on your own life. What are those areas in your life where there are problems, there are issues? What are those areas that you're not jumping in and doing something about it? God shows us... The passage we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2 that it is all of our responsibility to do something. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says this And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit. That is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's what Paul is saying He says, You and I, apart from God, before God stepped in and did something, we were dead, incapable of saving ourselves. We were spiritually bankrupt, spiritually dead, separated away from God, and there was nothing that we could do about it. Verse 4, those first two words are some of the most powerful words in Scripture. But God. We were dead. We were separated. There was nothing that we could do but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He goes out of his way to teach us what? That we were dead and there was nothing that we could do about it. The salvation that God brought through Jesus was purely by God's grace and mercy. There's an interesting little phrase that happens in the middle of verse 5 that probably in your version of Scripture, whichever version it is, it's either in a paraphrase, there's parentheses around it, or there's quotations around it, or maybe just a dash before and a dash after it. It's called a paraphrastic construction. It's this grammar thing where Paul is basically, he's trying to use two verbs to fully explain what's going on here. And so right in the middle of this sentence, he throws in another phrase, by grace you have been saved. A phrase that he will repeat again a couple of verses later. When he says that, he's adding this new finite verb. It's a perfect participle. It's in the perfect tense. What that means is that it's an action that occurred in the past. That action is complete. But the result of that action is still present today and ever ongoing. And so it's this picture of grace that is is really big and, and fully explained in a way that in the Greek really captures it better than we can in the English. That what Paul is trying to really convey as best as possible over and over is that we, you and I, did nothing to deserve what God did for us. It was purely by grace. It was an action that Jesus did in the past that is complete and finished, but is every bit as applicable right now. Today, in our world, as it was back then, it is by grace you have been saved, not works. The fallacy sometimes is that we have to work to get to God. I need to work to become holy, and that's not true. He's saying, no, you were dead. You couldn't ever get to God by yourself. It was only but God that got you to him. And then comes the so what. So what does that mean? He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, when we have the right perspective, that it was God who did it and not myself, it changes how we go about our life. Think about in life those opportunities, those moments where you think that it was your great duty and your great ability to accomplish something, that it's easier to take pride in those moments. Whereas when you've received something, when it's a gift, when you had nothing to do with it, it's much easier to be humble about those things. I find it's true, at least in my wife and I's situation, with parenting. We've got three kids, we've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, we've got a two-year-old. And naturally, especially our eight-year-old, he is just a rule follower. I, by nature, tend to be a rule follower. If there's a sign that says not to do something, I'm generally not going to do it. Some of you are rule followers. Go ahead and raise your hand if you're a rule follower. You can tell who the rule followers are because they felt like they had to because that was the rule. So if you're not a rule follower, like, yeah, I'm not raising my hand, not for this guy. But that's the natural thing of rule followers. You do what you are supposed to do. Brandt is like that. Even from a young age, if we told him to do something, he would do it. If we asked him to stop doing something, he would stop doing it. Now, we falsely thought that's because we were just amazing parents. We just thought, look at how good we are. It made us naturally judgmental against other parents. We would see parents and their kid would be disobeying them and we'd be scoffing to ourselves. We'd say, man, if only they could parent like we parent, (laughs) then they wouldn't have that problem like they have over there. We had this natural pride because we thought we were the people responsible for our good nature, good behaved child. And then Evie came along. Evie's two and a half right now, and she's gotten to this stage where she likes to jump off of things. I don't know why. I don't know where that came from. It's just this natural inclination that she has to climb on top of tall objects, oftentimes our couch, and jump off. It started with things like jumping from the coffee table to the couch. But then that got a little boring. And so then she just started climbing on top of the couch and jumping down to the ground. That's like a four-foot drop. For a a two-and-a-half-year-old, that's too far. And yet she continues to do it. It's not like she noticed somebody else doing it. I'm not over there climbing to the top of the couch and jumping. Like she just, on her own, decided this was a fun thing to do. And so oftentimes she will climb up to that couch. I will see it out of the corner of my eye. I will look over. I will say, Evie, Evie, look at daddy. I'll make eye contact. I'm using every parenting trick in the book that I know. I say, Evie, look me in the eyes. Evie, do not jump off the couch. And she will look me in the eyes and she will say, no. And jumps off the couch. Sometimes she will look me in the eyes and she will say, no thank you, and jump off the couch. And I say, Evie, that's not how this works. You can't just tell mommy and daddy no, even if it's politely said with a no thank you at the end. That's not how this works. But Evie has humbled us, because all of a sudden we realize that it wasn't our parenting style that had Brant doing what he was supposed to do. It was just the way that God had wired him. And now we've got a whole lot of trouble. And so now when we see some other parent and they're having a difficult time with their child, we're like, respect, we get you, right? Right on. When we think we are responsible for our righteousness, when we think we are responsible for the good things in our life, it's natural and easy to carry an air of pride because of that. But the picture of Christianity is recognizing that everything in my life Every good thing is a gift from God. That's not to say that I shouldn't work hard. There is a human responsibility aspect in my career, in my family, in my life. I should work. God expects me to work. But it falls underneath this umbrella of understanding that everything in my life is only there because God allows it to be there. Every breath I breathe is because of His grace because of his mercy. And so what? Because of what God has done, what then does he want me to do? Well, verse 10 is the answer. Verses 1 through 9 are the build-up to this, that we were dead, not by our own good works, but because of what God has done. We are alive in Christ. And then he says, for we are his workmanship. That word could also be translated as masterpiece. We are God's work of art, that God, because of what he did on the cross with Jesus, he created us to be his masterpiece to the world around that they would take note of the beauty, not because of our good works, but the beauty that God has done in us. And then it says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Sometimes we get it the opposite way. We think that we have to do good works to get to God, but it's the opposite. That once God gets to us, once we become a new creation, the overflow of that is good works. What am I created for? It's a big question that people ask all the time. What's my purpose? What's my meaning? God gives us the answer right here in Ephesians 2, that you were created for good works. To be the masterpiece of God. And then it says something that's fascinating. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Walk is to regulate one's life or behavior. It's this ongoing activity of who you are, your identity. But it says that God created it beforehand. You see, sometimes we feel like we just got tossed into the fray that we just happened to live in this moment, in this time, in this place. But what Scripture is telling you is that you were created of all the times and all eternity that you could exist. God created you right now in this moment, for this time, for this place. That God gives you specific relationships. God gives you specific expectations on your life that he created you for. The science backs that up. Tony Robbins, a few years ago at a TED Talk, he stood up in front of a group of people and he said, the odds of you existing are one in 400 trillion. Now that's pretty crazy. There was a PhD mathematician from Harvard sitting in the audience, and he said, no, 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 no. He said, that's way too good of odds. And he went and he started calculating the actual odds of your existence. And so start with something simple like just the odds of your parents coming in contact with each other, all the people in the world. From all those people leaving in a region where they might interact with each other, the odds of mom and dad coming together and having a conversation are 1 in 20,000. The odds of that conversation leading to multiple conversations after that 1 in 20,000 is about 1 in 10. The odds of multiple conversations then leading to some type of a romantic date, another 1 in 10. The odds of going on a second date, another 1 in 10. The odds of them staying together long enough to potentially get married, have a child, it's another about 1 in 10. So just at that point, just the odds of your parents coming together and having a child are somewhere around 1 in 40 million. Now, that's just the odds of them having a child. Doesn't mean it's you, could be your sibling, could be somebody else. Once you Factor in the biology, the chemistry involved there, it starts to get exponentially bigger and bigger and bigger. And so this mathematician from Harvard, here's what he said, the probability of you existing is one in 10 to the 2,685,000th power. I don't know the right way to say that number. That's how big that number is. He basically said the odds are zero. Mathematically, they would say that the odds of that number are impossible. Here's what he equates it to. Dr. Ali Benazir, he says, imagine there was only one life preserver thrown somewhere in some ocean, and there's exactly one turtle in all of those oceans swimming underwater somewhere. The probability that you came about and exist today is the same as that turtle sticking its head out of the water in the middle of that life preserver on a single try. The odds are zero. And yet, you exist right here, right now, and God would say, for a purpose. A purpose to do what? To do good works. You exist in your sphere of influence for a reason and for a purpose. The question is, what is that purpose? There was a book that was recently put out, it's called The Power of Meaning. And really in this book, it's this social scientist and she studied all the most recent data and looking at what's the purpose, what's the meaning. There's all these different things that they use to measure the quality of life. And by every objective measurement, the quality of life today around the world is significantly better than it ever has been. They look at quality of, Uh, life expectancy and quality of health care and quality of, of just people having food, overall income, average income for individuals, that life today objectively through scientific measurement is better than it ever has been in the history of the world. And yet, people are less happy with their lives today than they were 100 years ago. That for the last 30 years in the United States of America specifically, the feelings of hopelessness, depression, and suicide have continued to go up. It doesn't even account for this last year and the mental strain that this last year has taken on people. And so when they looked into studying the why, what predicts whether somebody will have value in their life, it came down to, really, she said two primary things. The first... Is having belonging, feeling like they belong to a community, belong to a group of people. And then the second is having purpose. Then, when people lack purpose in their life, they tend to flounder. And purpose, sometimes we think, is associated with means, but it's not. Purpose has nothing to do with finances. Purpose has nothing to do with celebrity status. Purpose has everything to do with what you are doing with your life. Why you feel like you exist. Why it's important for you to wake up every morning. Jesus, when he comes, he brings with his teaching some revolutionary things that you and I just take for granted. We assume that they're teachings that had always existed, but in the first century, when Jesus stands up and he starts teaching some of these things, they are radically different than everybody had ever heard ever before. You hear a lot of people that they're not Christians and they'll say, well, I I don't really believe in God. I mean, I think he's around, but I, I just generally think that God is love. That God just loves everyone and we should value everybody. What they don't realize is that is a very Christian teaching. That before Jesus, that mindset about God, that understanding of God did not exist. That the Greek and the Roman gods, they were brutal, they were selfish, they saw humans as playthings. And then Jesus brings with him this new teaching that God is this benevolent God full of grace and mercy that loves his creation and wants a relationship with his creation. That Jesus, time and time again, what he does is he values the individual. That in the first century, people's status, their value, their worth was largely based on their means. Based on what they could give to other people. Jesus didn't value people based off of what they had. He didn't value them based off of how he could benefit from them. He valued them based off of them. That time and time again, the disciples would see Jesus talking to these characters that in their mind he shouldn't be associating with. He was hanging out with tax collectors. He was giving personal time to prostitutes. That The Pharisees constantly looked at Jesus and they said, he hangs out with sinners. What is wrong with him? But it was because Jesus valued the individual. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, he's turning upside down a lot of the cultural norms about how we should go about living our lives, how we should value people, love your neighbor, love yourself as you love yourself. And then in Matthew chapter five, verses 13 through 16, he tells us the purpose, the meaning of why we're here. If you are a Christ follower, this is for you. It says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, Salt on the molecular level cannot lose its saltiness. You can't take some salt and turn it into something else. The way that salt loses its effectiveness, loses its saltiness, is it gets overwhelmed by other flavors. Think about if you're making some scrambled eggs in the morning, you add just a pinch of salt, and that pinch of salt goes a long way in adding flavor to that dish. But the more flavors involved, the bigger the meal involved, the less that salt adds flavor. That you and I are meant to be this salt, this flavor to the world around us. But we lose our saltiness when we mix in with the culture around us. When you can't tell the difference between my life and somebody else's life. When Christianity no longer sets itself apart through the actions, through the good works, through the good deeds of Jesus' followers, then it loses its saltiness. My mom's mom was named Gran. My dad's mom was named Granny. So my Granny was this amazing character. She was larger than life She would go on vacation with my grandpa. When she'd go on vacation, she would always send us postcards. They had an RV. They would drive across the country. They would send us back postcards. And she always had these witty phrases that she would write in there. She'd give us life advice. On one of her postcards, she wrote, P.S., never vacuum while holding a cat. Good life advice. I've never done that. I don't know that I ever would have done that if not for that advice. But she would always have these witty phrases that she would add. And then she had this catchphrase that she loved to say. She would say, mmm, good. She did it not just in cooking. She did it in a whole lot of other areas. So she saw someone that she thought they were attractive, male or female. She would say, mmm, good. They are good looking. But she especially used that phrase, of course, when she was cooking. She made two things really well, chocolate cake and chicken and dumplings. She once tried to teach my wife, my sisters, my sister-in-law how to teach, how to Craft her chicken and dumplings, she quit halfway through. She said, y'all are hopeless. You can't do it. You can't get it right. And she walked out of the kitchen. She was very precise on how it had to be made because when you made it right, it became mm, good. You and I as Christians, if we're Christ followers, we are supposed to live a life that is salty, that adds flavor, that becomes mm, good to the world around us. How do we do that? Three M's. The first M is motivation. Why should we live lives that are different? Why should we live lives that are salty? Why should we live lives that demonstrate good works to the world around us? What motivates us to do that? There's a big difference between being motivated by obligation and being motivated by love. Sometimes I'll walk by the dishwasher and the dishes are clean and they need to be unloaded, or vice versa, the dishes are dirty and they need to be loaded. And I have this moment of questioning in my mind of should I jump in and do something or not? Maybe you have experienced something familiar to that. And so sometimes my motivation will be, I'm going to do the dishes so that specifically probably my wife, because my kids aren't going to do them, won't have to. And so I'm motivated by love. And when I do that, the meaning to my wife, she takes note. But other times I walk right by those dishes and then busyness will set in and my wife will say, hey, do you mind doing the dishes? And there's something about when someone asks you to do the dishes that they become so much more burdensome. They're so much worse and then if I go and do the dishes, which oftentimes if she asks me to, I do that. That's good life advice, by the way. I do those dishes. The response to her, it's not that she doesn't value that. It's not that she doesn't like that. But I'm doing it because she asks. I'm doing it out of obligation. The difference between doing something as an act of love and doing something because I have to is big. Think of an anniversary or a birthday birthday. My wife and I, this summer, we'll have our 15th wedding anniversary. Now, if I go home today and have a conversation with my wife and say, you know, I guess we should do something for our 15th wedding anniversary. I mean, I don't really want to spend the money. I don't know that we really want to go anywhere, but I guess we have to. So where do you want to go? That conversation probably doesn't leave her feeling excited about going on a 15th wedding anniversary trip. Instead, the purpose of an anniversary trip should be, I love you just as much today as I did 15 years ago. In fact, I love you more today than I did 15 years ago. let's go celebrate our love and our life this summer for our 15th wedding anniversary. The difference between that approach is drastic. You see, when we serve out of obligation, that motivation only carries us for so long. I could get up here right now and guilt a lot of people into serving around the church. I could guilt you into serving in the kids' ministry. I could guilt you into serving in the choir, our greeters, our ushers, our youth ministry. There are a thousand different things that we need people serving and volunteering for. But if your motivation is simply obligation, that someone has guilted you into doing it, guess what typically happens when someone volunteers with that mindset? they last for a certain amount of time And then it gets old really quick, and then they stop. But if the motivation is right, if the motivation is love, we have volunteers that have been serving for decades, that they get here before anybody else, and they're pouring into the lives of our kids, or they're pouring into the lives of our youth. They're giving their time and their sacrifice, and no one will ever notice it. But the reason they do it is that their motivation is love. They see those kids, they see their ministry, they see the purpose, and they love doing it. And because of that, they keep on doing it again and again. That the first M is motivation. Motivation can't be an obligation. If it's an obligation, then there's a heart issue. It's got to be love. The second thing is movement. That we see over and over again in scripture that Jesus feels compassion, and that compassion moves him into action. That every time we see that word, compassion, in the Greek it's the word splagnizomai, it means the gut, that he has this gut feeling. Compassion always results with action. It always results in him doing something about it. That Jesus sees someone in need. He has compassion, and he steps in to fix something. He has compassion with people that we from that first century mindset, would never expect him to have compassion on. Think of the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. He was a Jewish man, he's having an interaction with Samaritan woman. Not just that, but but something that goes unnoticed by us is that he asks for a drink from her bucket. Now, clean and unclean was a very big thing in the first century. And racially they, they wouldn't cross over and mix and you definitely wouldn't drink water out of somebody else's mug and yet jesus does he asks for a drink why because he values her and then he goes on because of the compassion that he has and he helps restore her to right standing not just with her community but also with god that jesus is moved to action that if we want to be salt of the earth that we have to first and foremost believe that what scripture tells us is true, that God created me for a purpose, not by accident, but placed me in this moment in time for a reason and a meaning that God has uniquely crafted me into this timeline and moment of history. God has uniquely given me friendships and relationships and a workplace and a neighborhood that he expects me to do the good works of the gospel, but not just have the bystander effect. I can't just assume it's somebody else's job. I can't just assume that somebody else will take care of it, that God is looking me in the eyes and pointing to my chest and saying, you call 911. You are the one responsible for this moment, for this place, for your life. That I should be serving the world around me. Jesus over and over and over again uses this word, serve, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and the result of that should be that we serve. You see, the disciples, they start bickering with one another about who's going to be the most important, who's going to be the right hand, and what does Jesus tell them? He says, "You, you just don't get it. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Mark, in describing Jesus, says Jesus did not come to be served by the world, but to serve the world. Jesus over and over again says, if you are going to be my followers, if you are going to live the life that I'm calling you to live, then you must serve other people. You must be motivated by love. It must translate to movement. And that movement always should include a message. Don't just help people, point them to God. That Jesus, when he would help heal somebody, He would interact with a leper, someone that in the first century he shouldn't come close to. They were unclean just by associating with them. He would be considered unclean, but he would go value them anyway. He would heal that leper, but over and over again, he didn't just heal somebody. He also said what? He said, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. He didn't just care about their physical value. He cared about their spiritual value. How many people do you know in your life that you have relationships with? And you would say, I love that person, I value that person, but you know right now that they don't have a relationship with God. I know right now I can think of friends I have, I can think of family members I have, that I know biblically that they are spiritually dead. And sometimes I don't want to approach that conversation because I don't want to step on their toes. And in the scheme of eternity, how silly is it? For me to say that I love someone, yet know that they are spiritually dead and not do anything about it. If you saw someone dying in person that was a loved one, you would do everything you could to try and save that person. And yet as a Christian, sometimes I see someone who's dying and I don't have the urgency to try and do anything. That the message has to be part of the movement. That I should serve the world, but serve in a way that points them towards Jesus, my life should be different because I recognize that I was dead and now I'm alive. And that changes everything. World War I, the United States didn't enter the war for the first few years. 1917 was when we jumped into, at that time, it was just called the Great War. And there was two divisions, the 37th division and the 91st division that were sent to Belgium They went and they fought in the Spittle Woods in Belgium. They reported to the Belgium king. Belgium was overrun by foreign invaders. And so they had this huge, long, bloody battle in these woods. And in those woods, 1,200 American soldiers gave their life for Belgium. 1918, the war is over. That Belgium king... Recognize the sacrifice that these foreigners had made for his country, for his land. And so he contacts the United States of America and says, I want to build a memorial. And for those soldiers that that aren't going to be, those bodies of soldiers that aren't going to be sent home, we want to give you land to bury them, to remember them, a memorial for their lives, their sacrifice, because we recognize that we wouldn't be here today if not for their sacrifice. They created what's called Flanders Field. 367 American men are buried there, 43 that were missing. This is it in 1923 when it was first built, and this is it today. Still standing and in pristine condition. In 1923, they had their first memorial service on Memorial Day. They had kids from Belgium go and learn the United States national anthem and sing it in English. They speak Flemish, but they they sang it in English. That was in 1923, the very first Memorial Day celebration. They have done this celebration every Memorial Day for almost 100 years. Here are pictures of that same celebration recently happening where kids in Belgium continue to learn in a language they don't speak, the U.S. national anthem. I would say that there are people in Belgium that do a better job of honoring Memorial Day, a U.S. holiday, than there are people in the United States of America that do it. That this country recognizes the sacrifice and that Belgium King said, I don't want people to ever forget that we know. That there was a sacrifice that was made. People died for us and therefore we will honor them. Our lives will look different. That what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 is that we as Christians should recognize that we were dead. And our declaration every day to the world should be, I know that someone sacrificed his life for me and I will never be the same, and so I will serve the, the world in loving kindness as salt and light to the earth, because I was dead, and because of Jesus, I'm alive.